Glad you're with us on today's podcast. And I want you to know that on the Clark Howard Show, the idea is simple. It's to give you advice and information that helps you take more control of your wallet. And one area that through the years has been clear people feel out of control is with student loans, whether they went to some kind of uh, private college for some kind of technical skill or they went to a traditional college. The burden of student loan debt has really been a life-changing event for many people. And I take calls from people who, or questions from people who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. I hear from people who have no possibility of ever getting all their loans paid off. And it has been uh, really, really depressing for a lot of people to be in that situation. And that's why there's a lot of attention being focused on what's going to happen when the Democrats control both branches of the Congress and the White House over what they're going to do about student loans and forgiveness. And there will be a number of proposals floated. But one area of unfinished business is something that was passed uh, on a widely bipartisan basis quite a while ago, back in 2007, I think was the year, and was when I first talked about it, was public service loan forgiveness. And there are a lot of people who work in public service kind of jobs, think of teachers, police officers, firefighters, people who work for nonprofit organizations, who have chosen to work in jobs where they don't make as much money, but they in turn are of service to others. And so that's why Congress, in order to encourage people to work in fields that serve their fellow Americans, came up with public service loan forgiveness, a program that has had administrative failures and then political ones where uh, the federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, failed to act in good faith on loan forgiveness and has worked over the years to deny 99% of people who have paid into the student loan program as required for 10 years to receive loan forgiveness in return for 10 years of public service work. And that's a program that absolutely, because of the scandals involved with the U.S. Department of Education and its contractors sabotaging people's abilities to get loan forgiveness, everybody's aware of that now. And I think it's very obvious that the loan forgiveness program will begin to work. Now, there are very specific rules that Department of Education contractors lied to people about. You have got to know the rules yourself. There are very specific requirements for you to qualify. And the 10 years of on-time payments based on your income, income-based, is only one of the requirements. A second one that has confused the daylights out of people in public service work is that your loans have to be eligible. And there are very specific criteria for it and also how you make those loans eligible. And at Clark.com, 
we have information for you. And now there is a new public service loan forgiveness help tool that walks you through how to figure out if you were set up properly for your months to count towards public service loan forgiveness. But the one thing I want from Congress is that when they do whatever they're going to do about student loans, is people who work as teachers or in public health or as teacher, as uh, firefighters, police officers, uh, whatever the eligible categories are, that people who have made in good faith their payments on time month after month for 10 consecutive years should be waived through the forgiveness program because it was the federal government itself and its contractors that either misled or lied to borrowers that made them have their forgiveness uh, invalidated. Those people must have their forgiveness honored. We must meet our promises to people who do public service work. It's time for your questions that you've posted for me. And Joel, what you got? All right, Clark, let's keep talking about student loans here. Michelle in Michigan says, both of my kids have student loans. Since the new president has alluded to the idea of paying off a part or all the student loans in full, how long should we wait to pay on them? Is it also true that the student loan freeze has been extended until March? The student loan freeze has been extended, and I don't even want to say what date it will end up being extended to. It will likely be extended till we've got enough shots in people's arms and the economic conditions brought on by the pandemic lift. Um, and the Congress has to come to a mind. The Democrats cannot push through significant changes in the student loan program or forgiveness without coming up with something that Republicans also go along with. The Democrats' margin of seats in the House is tiny. In the Senate, it is non-existent, with it only being broken by the vice president uh, when Kamala Harris is the vice president. And so this is one that's going to require a meeting of the minds between Republicans and Democrats for how student loans will work going forward and what forgiveness and whatever amount it will be and what you'll have to do to qualify for that forgiveness will end up being. Mick in New York says you always say to wait until junior or senior year of college to tap into a 529. Please explain that decision more thoroughly. CSS, etc. always ask what you have in savings. So why have more to report if you could use it up in the first years? So that's a great question. And there's not an automatic answer to it, but a huge percent of money in 529 accounts is in the hands of grandparents that have that money for the benefit of grandchildren. And there are specific um, crazy rules involving money that a grandparent has in a 529 account that make it more favorable for that money to be used junior and senior year. But as far as why I've said it over the years, for uh, parents with 529 accounts they control, is it's a pretty simple thing. It gives you additional time for tax-free growth of the 529 plan. Maybe not enough growth for me to have that obsession, 
but the money can be used uh, as you wish. And I have a situation where I have three children. One of them, I never used any of her 529 money at all and rolled it in to change the beneficiary to her younger sister, who now is a second semester junior. I still haven't used any of the money in her account or the money that she basically inherited the use of from her sister. And I don't know what's wrong with me. It's like I'm a hoarder that I won't use any of this money. But it means that um, if my uh, middle child goes to grad school, she's going to be set for that. And then my uh, third child, our son, uh, who is still in high school, when he goes to college, I'll have all the money I'll need because I can take money from what was intended for each sister and use it for him. So I think it's just a screw loose in my head. The only benefit is the stock market has had an enormous run-up in recent years. And I saw a statement for um, for one of the 529 accounts that showed how much money it had earned over the years tax-free. And that felt pretty good. I bet but, you'll be able to send Grant to Mars for college. <laughs> you think so? I mean, it really is. Um, I think it's a problem. There are people like me who have this uh, thing where we hoard savings and i guess that i'm so wired that way that i would always put off trying to spend 529 money but that's just not the right answer for everyone what you said is accurate all right clark let's get to another one sam in uh, wisconsin says i'm a recent college graduate with very few living expenses which allows me to save and invest a majority of my salary to the tune of $20,000 a year right now. Wow. In addition to my Roth IRA, I'm planning to open a brokerage account and put most of that money in growth funds. I'd like to purchase a home in the next 10 to 15 years, but I'm worried about the potential capital gains I would owe on my earnings. Uh, so are there any more tax efficient ways to save for a house? Yeah. So you save in index funds, not growth funds. Index funds will have much lower management expenses and if you do the Fidelity Zero index funds, you'll have zero management expenses on your money. And the tax treatment of index funds is far more favorable than it is with managed funds inside a traditional investment account. So that's the change I would make. The embedded capital gains will have very favorable taxation, but having money in an investment account in growth funds means you're going to generate tax bills each year what some people refer to as phantom income because you're going to be charged tax that you're going to have to pay each year because of the trading activity that goes on inside of a traditionally managed fund an index fund because it just simply holds all the stocks in an index like the 500 largest stocks or a total stock market index or an international index fund has very few changes in portfolio leading to very little generation of current taxes each year. And I'm so impressed with how much money you're saving. I'm gathering from what you said, you don't have access to an employer-sponsored plan. When the time comes that you do, you want to go into the Roth 401k option in an employer's 401k plan. And coming up straight ahead, Clark Stinks. 
where you get to hear how people feel, or maybe you were one of the individuals who feels, I answered a question inadequately, have a thick head, bad opinion, or bad advice. It helps me learn from you. When you want advice for your wallet, we're here to serve you both on the podcast and also with advice away from the show, where you can talk with a member of Team Clark in our Consumer Action Center. We're available at all times I'm going to give you are Eastern times on Mondays from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., where you get to talk with someone one-on-one about the questions you have about your wallet that you hope that we can answer for you. Uh, The number to call in is 470-284-7137. Let me repeat that. It's 470-284-7137. You come to me for advice and information that you can trust and put to work in your wallet. And there are times that you'll hear advice from me that you feel like I missed the mark, that I didn't give good guidance, that I didn't give good direction. And that's why we have the feedback opportunity to help me help you better, and that's Clark.com slash ClarkStinks. And then Krista and Joel go through your posts on ClarkStinks and share their favorites with you right here on the show. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, Clark. Before you start, Chris, I got to throw something out there. I have a lot of people kind of sheepishly come up to me, not so much since the pandemic, since I live in a cave during the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, they come up kind of sheepishly and they say, you know, I I hate to say it, but I really love Clark Stinks. I just love hearing it. But how do you do that? Why do you do that? And just so you know why we do it, if you go back uh, 15 or so years ago, there were a number of hate sites towards me on the Internet and people that were griping about me. They were angry at me. They hated me, whatever. And my thinking was, if people needed to blow off steam or were upset with me or whatever, we should let them know I'm open to that and I want to hear from you. And that's why we started Clark.com slash Clark Stinks. And then later we started the forum right here on the show so you could hear other people's comments because it's important that you know uh, a thing about me and that's that none of us have infinite wisdom we all learn from each other we're all flawed as human beings and there are times you'll hear me react to what somebody's posted and i'll disagree but the idea is that we all learn from each other and i get to see things from a perspective that maybe in my thick head i missed so with that Krista, go ahead. All right. Uh, Fred says, on the one hand, you let people know that the social security number is required for credit. Then you tell people their medical clinic does not need it. Every day we extend thousands of dollars in credit, interest-free to our patients while waiting on payment from third-party payers and the deductibles from the patient. 
the credit standing of our patients is really the only effective tool to help in collections, and this requires the Social Security number. I appreciate that, and you're going to one of the aspects of how the credit laws work, and that is, does a medical provider have a legitimate business reason to have a customer, a patient's Social Security number? And that is not settled on whether or not that is a legitimate business purpose. But the big issue is that the medical industry has been by far the worst at data breaches. You think about how often we've gotten letters from medical providers, doctor's offices, labs, hospitals, uh, surgery centers, whatever, saying they've had data breaches and that information on you, including potentially your social security number, has been exposed. You want to be very careful giving your social security number. And I do not believe that what you stated is the reason a doctor's office ability to hire a debt collector to go after someone is a reason why I should put myself at risk of identity theft. Joel? All right, Clark, apparently you talked about how great curbside grocery pickup is for your wallet, but you neglected one major detail, which makes this stink like a week old fish. Many grocers are using Instacart to do their curbside service as well, uh, like Aldi and Publix. So you're still paying the same price as if you were going to have Instacart delivered to your home. How is that saving any money? Unless the store has its own staff doing curbside with regular store prices like Walmart, you might as well have it delivered since you're paying the Instacart or other delivery services the same amount of money either way and you're using your own gas. Todd. Todd, thank you for that. I'm not familiar with Publix's relationship with Instacart for curbside pickup. In Aldi's case, they're using Instacart as the way of handling the um, digital infrastructure for doing curbside pickup. The curbside, the collection of your items and the delivery to your vehicle are being done in Aldi stores, at least in my region, by Aldi employees. I pay $1.99 for the curbside pickup, and I find that a lot of items are marked up $0.10 per item for the convenience of being able to have the curbside pickup. And I will tell you, as soon as I have that second shot slapped in my arm, I'll be back in the grocery store picking out my own items and saving that additional expense. Plus, one thing I've found with curbside pickup, no matter who I get it from, is I hate the expiration dates on the items I get. That when I shop, I'm looking through, looking for the items with the latest expiration date, and that's not going to happen when you do curbside pickup because they're having to pull items as quickly as they can. But in the case of Aldi, if I'm paying 10 cents extra an item, I'm still saving a zillion dollars on my grocery bill versus shopping somewhere else. Krista? Clark, you smell like a fried motherboard. Connecting a DVD drive to a Chromebook will not allow you to install a Windows program on the Chromebook. If the Chromebook is app capable, then you could install TurboTax from the Play Store. There are ways to get Windows and Linux programs to run on a Chromebook, but I don't want to make your head explode. And that was from Mike, but this was in response to something I had on Clark Stinks last week. Um, And so many people wrote in agreeing with Mike that those Clark Stinks were wrong last week to tell you that you just 
buy a CD, CD or DVD drive to attach to the Chromebook. And remember what I said last week, that this was over my head? <laughs> you, you read that, that I was missing that suggestion, and now we have people saying the suggestion is faulty. So... Uh, Chromebooks are great at what they do. That's all I have. I don't. I actually don't have a Windows computer or a MacBook. Everything I do, I have two Chromebooks in front of me right now doing the podcast, and they do everything I need, and I'm thrilled with them. But when you start moving past the basic built-in simplicity of a Chromebook, you outrun my technology knowledge. So now next week, we'll have rebuttals from people on being able to plug in peripherals and use other programs on a Chromebook, and I'll still be in over my head. Joel? Pay for a commercial-free podcast? I listen to podcasts for free with no commercials, many of them, and they are an hour more, uh, longer or more. But what can you expect from a wealthy person who takes napkins and ketchup packs from fast food places? Clark? You're being greedy here, James. James, thank you for that. Um, the podcast being available at a monthly fee was actually a request from a small number of people saying, hey, I'd rather just be able to listen to it without commercials. Um, I got to ask, what do we charge for the podcast if somebody wants it without commercials? It is $4.99 a month. $4.99 a month, or I can listen to commercials and it's free? Do we have anybody who's paying $4.99 a month? We do, we do, but it's just an option. Definitely not something that we think you should pay for. So it, it's something we offered simply because we were asked, and I expect that people will generally prefer um being cheap like I am. I mean, it's funny because I start talking about streaming TV and I got all excited. I was talking with somebody yesterday about being able to stream all these different streaming services that you can get with no monthly fee. And all you have to do is watch commercials with the shows. And I'm all excited about that. And, and so that's the way I think. I'd rather have the commercials and have content without having to pay for it. But everybody's got to have the choices they want. And if you want to pay for it and have commercial free, it's there for you. Clark.com slash podcast. Okay. A lot of Clark's thinks about you talking about unemployment. And here is one. Clark, I know you don't agree with the low minimum wage law anymore, but here is why I think $15 minimum wage is a bad idea. I believe you used to report that only a very small part of our country even makes minimum wage, and of that group, they were mostly teenagers. When I graduated high school, I had no idea what to do. I got a job at a car wash for minimum wage. We had a lot of fun while cleaning people's cars. Because it was minimum wage, it didn't take me long to realize I could never make a living working there. In the fall of that year, I applied to our local technical college and got a two-year degree in automotive repair. I've been working at dealerships since graduating and have almost from the start made an above average wage. I've always had other dealerships wanting my employment and have never been laid off. Sometimes I think that job from 30 plus years ago about it and I wonder if I would still be scrubbing cars had I been earning more than minimum wage. You don't stink, but I would hate for people to settle with entry level jobs because they can start off making a living wage. Mike. Mike, thank you, and I'm so glad that your 30-plus years 
has generated job satisfaction for you and a wonderful income. And you did something that I'm so into, and that's people going to state-supported technical colleges where the cost is free or nearly so or very inexpensive. Uh, As for an idea that's kicked around for years, having for teenagers a sub-minimum wage just for teenagers so that they have an opportunity to get some job experience, and that may well be a valid idea and would speak right to what you were talking about. Joel? All right, Clark. This one uh, comes from a realtor. Uh, She says, I've been a realtor for 20 years, and I was quite offended at your comment from your January 5th episode when you said that all realtors will try to sell their clients the highest-priced home that they qualify for, no matter what the payment is. Not me, and not a whole lot of us good realtors out there. I always ask my clients if they've gone over what their payments will look like with their loan officer and what purchase price they're comfortable with, no matter how much they actually qualify for. I know you have a bias against realtors, and certainly there are way too many unscrupulous ones out there, but please don't lump us all together. I take very good care of my clients and take my fiduciary duty to look out for their best interests very seriously. Julia. Julia, thank you very much for your post. Why you think I'm anti-agent, I don't know, because I'm absolutely not. I believe that a lot of transactions would never make it to the closing table if it were not for the real estate agents. People get very emotional when they're buying a home or selling a home and lose sight of the transaction that's being done, and that's where you earn your money. Uh, Forget all the rest of it, marketing a property and finding the buyers and finding the right home if you're a buyer's agent for the people you're taking around. No, I am definitely not any agent. I have found uh, historically, and maybe I'm wrong, that agents tend to uh, hear a price from somebody and use that as the floor instead of the ceiling on the homes that they should be showing someone, which is why I've encouraged people over the years to state a price lower than where they're even really thinking, knowing there might be some inflation in the price points of the homes that they see. But that was not in any way specifically a knock on real estate agents. If it felt that way, I apologize for that. And I appreciate your post and all the others that you have for me on Clark Stinks. There are things that I need to be made aware of. There are mistakes I make. There's advice I give that could be better or more targeted. Or you may feel that the advice is flat out wrong. Please, when that happens, go to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks.